Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of advanced warning that this is going to be one of those times of study that's going to take a little bit of effort. We're going to have to really uh, roll up our exegetical or our study sleeves and understand what's going on here because this really is the battleground in one of the primary battlegrounds in the New Testament between conservative and liberal scholars. This passage has become the battleground for those who would ridicule the person of Christ, those who would doubt the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible, and have pointed fingers at those of us who believe the Bible and said we are foolish and ignore contradictions in the Word of God. Is that enough to get your attention? Mark chapter 2, follow along as I read the passage before us. Verses 22, 23 to 28. And it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along, picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David, what he did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests and he gave also to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you study the history of the Jews, or if you know anyone who is Jewish and have Jewish friends, you will notice a few things distinctive about that religion. In fact, over the course of history, the two things that stand out most as distinguishing features of the Jewish people are circumcision and observing the Sabbath. Now, for obvious reasons, observing the Sabbath is perhaps the most visible in Judaism, this is true even to this day. My wife and I live in a, a neighborhood that is, that is filled with Orthodox Jewish people because we live within walking distance of a synagogue. And even yesterday, I was out, I'm assuming, according to their mind, breaking the Sabbath and working with my son Mark to pick up some oak tree branches that had fallen off of our, our tree. And uh, one of our neighbor friends stopped, and we had a great and a gracious talk, but it was very clear that he was on the way to worship on the Sabbath, and he was going to observe it. This should be no surprise, because observing the, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's the fourth commandment. In fact, it's the longest of all the commandments. It has the most explanation and the most application of all the Ten Commandments. Moses provided the first 10 commandments, the first iteration rather of the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Remember at Mount Sinai, listen to the first time he talked about observing the, uh, the Sabbath to the Jewish people. Exodus chapter 20 verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. By the way, those who are Sabbatarians usually 
forget that if you want to be a Sabbatarian, you don't get a weekend, you get a day, but that's for another time. We'll address that next week, by the way. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord. In it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it, the seventh day, Saturday, holy. Now, there's explanation and contractual writers, as we would call them, that are added in Deuteronomy chapter 5 when Moses gives the second iteration of the Ten Commandments. Remember, this is to a new group of people. The first group had died out because of their sin, doubting God. This is a new group on the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River. They can see the promised land, and Moses gives them this final sermon where he gives the law a second time. That's where the word Deuteronomy, second law giving, comes. And listen to the second time he tells about the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. As the Lord your God also commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of the cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. So that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Then he adds this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there. He saved you by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He adds this this appendix, this this little footnote to what he said in uh, Exodus that says, remember That God saved you and you need to take time on the Sabbath day to revel in the salvation, the being saved from Egypt that God had provided to you and the Jewish people. Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, ended at sundown on Saturday. But applying what was acceptable and what was unacceptable, what defined what was defined as work and what was not, what was defined as rest and what was not, what was sinful and lawful became an ever-expanding subject in the centuries before Jesus. This came through instruction that was added to the Torah or the written law. Now, there's some words that, that I've used before, and someone even asked me the other day, what's the Mishnah? You said the Mishnah. Let me just give you a couple of words that you're going to need to keep in mind because this is important because the, the Pharisees had the law of God that was feeding into their thinking, but they also had these other documents and this oral tradition that was feeding into their thinking as well. First, there's the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the oral law, the oral tradition in Judaism as opposed to the written law, which was the Torah, or what we have as the law, the Older Testament. The Mishnah was collected, and ultimately it was codified or written down into what was called the Talmud, which was a written document of the oral tradition, finalized about 200 years after Christ. But there were written and oral traditions that would eventually end up in the Talmud that were Mishnah or Midrash sayings. 
Now, the word Talmud is a word that means learning and instruction. And I really believe that the, the original intent of the Talmud and these, these writers were to provide commentary on the law. And there are places where we get excellent insight into what these, these applications of the law should have been. And it, they're, they're very fine commentaries. But they also began to leak into adding things to the law their own interpretation. Specifically, they added much to how the Sabbath was interpreted, how the Sabbath was applied, and that became a significant accent in their oral and their written tradition. So much so that, listen, they created 39 separate categories of what work means. And within those categories, there were not hundreds, but thousands of subsets explaining what work is and what work isn't. They even included how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, how many steps you could take from your house, how many letters you could write with your hand, how many fingernails you could cut or not. Now this is important when we come to the narrative at the end of Mark 2. The Sabbath had for these people become a legalistic, superstitious test case for someone's orthodoxy, how serious they were about the Lord. And Jesus, as he's going to do throughout Mark, is going to turn their thinking completely on his head and saying, you're missing the whole point so let's drill down and look at the narrative and discover together three new ways to interpret an old dilemma. Three new ways to interpret, interpret an old dilemma. The old dilemma is, what is the Sabbath? How do we keep it holy? Can we work? Should we work? What can we do? What should we not do on the Sabbath day? That's the old dilemma. And Jesus wants to give them a new way of thinking about it. The first is in verses 23 and 24, identifying the misinterpretation of the Sabbath. He says, okay, let's call wrong, wrong at the very beginning. Identifying the misinterpretation of the Sabbath. Verse 23. And it happened that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on Saturday, his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Now let's... View this in our sanctified imagination. It's Saturday. It's likely midday. It's likely that they're walking along. And they're also being followed. Jesus and his men are being followed by a group of critics. We've all had our critics in our day. Can you imagine everywhere you go, turning around, and there's a group of people there just to criticize you, to catch you in something you've said? So they're walking along this path that cut presumably through a wheat field and it's presumably in May or June. How do we know that? Because that's when the wheat came to harvest and was ready to be eaten. The setting is simple. The disciples are hungry and they begin to grab a few handfuls of wheat. They would rub, Luke tells us that they, they rubbed them between their hands, let the chaff blow off, kept the grain and were snacking. The Pharisees were saying, verse 24, to him, Look, 
Why are they doing what is illegal, unlawful, sinful on the Sabbath? Now we know that they were following them because they're looking, they're just trying to catch these guys doing something for which they can criticize them. Now this is interesting on a few fronts. First of all, what the disciples were doing was not sin. Now I know some of you are thinking, well that wasn't their grain field. And could they really just kind of steal the grain? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 25, listen to this. When your neighbor, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, this is what they had done, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. What is this about? You can have a few handfuls, but don't get out a sickle and like fill your, your, your uh, pantry. That's the point. You can have a snack. If you're walking through a, a neighbor's vineyard, then you can pluck some grapes or his apple trees. You can grab an apple, but don't get baskets and neglect your own work because of the work of your neighbor. It's specifically said to be okay what the disciples are doing in Deuteronomy 23, 25. Secondly, they weren't doing what constituted work. Because according to Deuteronomy, they would have needed a tool, a sickle. They were just having a snack. But a third observation is the scribes had added to the law of Moses by enumerating, remember those 39 categories of, of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Roughly a third of those uh, extra biblical regulations involved reaping grain. So the Pharisees are interpreting these lawful snacks as violating the Sabbath. Now, here's the central issue that Jesus will address. He's going to address this to the religious leaders, but, but it also raises to the level of our own observation, our own application. What do we really believe indicates what is lawful and unlawful, what is sinful and what is righteous? What is the standard of calling sin, sin, and calling righteousness, righteousness. These leaders had developed a system where they could be righteous in their own eyes. And throughout his ministry, Jesus is going to shatter the kind of legalism that existed in the Pharisees' understanding of self-righteousness. We usually look at self-righteousness and we, we look, use it kind of as a caustic way. He's so self-righteous. They really believe that in themselves... They could produce righteousness that would please God. That's what Romans 2, 3, and 4 is about. They had invented clever ways. They could deny certain responsibilities of God. And at the same time, they created rules they could keep and rules they could wield over other people to call them sinners. This must have been one of those rules. Now, some have speculated, well, they said the disciples had walked too far from their house. The text doesn't say that, but if that's the case, well, so had the Pharisees. And some would say, well, they, they, they were, they were uh, uh, reaping, but Deuteronomy says this was completely lawful, encouraged. Have a snack on your neighbor. Again, this is one of the things Jesus relentlessly 
confronted in his earthly ministry. It's the blind spot of self-righteousness that existed in those who were, in their own estimation, spiritually informed, spiritually elite, spiritually self-aware. What was the most common and pervasive indicator of these people? They were all experts in the sins of others, but not themselves. They could see the failures of others, the weakness of others, but they wouldn't promote their own. They were professional critics. They were known for their legalistic and judgmental attitudes more so than their love for God himself. Beware of the heart that speaks more of others' failures than personal faults. That's at the heart of Jesus' instruction. Now, Jesus is not um, vague about these religious leaders. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. And then the same group of people, just a few verses later in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And then we, we love that verse, but listen to the next one. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's a plea to be grace givers and mercy givers and understanding not legalistic. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus said. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These Pharisees, these disciples of the Pharisees, were looking so intently at this speck. It wasn't even a speck. It was completely allowed by the Mosaic law. They couldn't see their own judgmentalism. So now we come to Jesus' response to these hypocrites. We come to the second new way to interpret an old dilemma. Number two, understanding the purpose of the Sabbath. Understanding the purpose of the Sabbath. One of the most misunderstood subjects since Moses gave it on Sinai. So they've made this criticism. They've asked the question and Jesus answers. He says to them, have you never read, stop right there. (laughs) There is the assumption in Jesus' mind that anyone with religious moxie, with religious standing would know the scriptures. Then he relates an incident from 1 Samuel. What David did when he was in need. He ate, he and his companions became hungry rather. He entered into the house of God. This would have been the tabernacle at this time. Remember the temple's not built until Solomon. The time of Abiathar the high priest. He ate the dedicated or the consecrated, the holy bread. Which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest's. And he also gave it to those who were with him. There was bread always put in the temple once a week. It's enough bread to last the week so that the priest could deal with the temple worship and not have to work the fields. 
Now this situation and what Jesus says in it raise a question that we have to address before we even look at the meaning this morning. This is what I was referring to a moment ago. Jesus is asking the pharisaical skeptics if they are familiar with the Old Testament narrative of David, his men being hungry, entering the sanctuary at Nob to beg for food. Now, in order to understand this, we have to read what Jesus expected his hearers to have read and known. So turn your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background. David is on the run for his life from who? Who's he running from? Saul. He's running from King Saul. Saul wants to kill David. So he comes to a place called Nob. He was in such a rush to get there, he set out without any food and no weapons. He will leave with food. And remember the weapon he leaves Nob with, if you read 1 Samuel recently? Goliath's sword, which would have probably been too heavy to carry around, but he leaves with that. That's all that was there. He comes to the sanctuary at Nob, not far from Saul's palace, and he's seeking help. He's in trouble. He's hungry. Now, the priest who met with him seems to have been aware that, that uh, David was in trouble. There was trouble brewing between him and Saul because the text tells us that he trembled when he saw David. Then the narrative gets complicated. The priest was afraid of why David was there to meet him alone. And then David lies. He told two premeditated lies, in fact. First, he stated that he was on a secret mission for Saul and that he'd arranged to meet his own men later on. And there's no mention of David's men anywhere in 1 Samuel 21. In fact, his plan was to flee from there, go to the Philistine city of Gath and beg Israel's enemies for refuge. I'm compressing a lot in just a few, few moments here. Therefore, he asked Ahimelech, the priest who met him, for five loaves of bread, just about enough to get David to Gath by himself. Background now, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet with David. And said, why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending you with which I've commissioned you. And I have directed the young man to a certain place. Complete fabrication. Now, therefore, what, you, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. I'm hungry. The priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread at hand, but there is the show bread, the consecrated bread. If only the young, mans have kept, the young men have kept themselves from women. In other words, if, if I can rest assured these are holy men, we can talk. David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out in the vessels, the vessels of the young men that they were holy Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave consecrated bread to him, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, 
That's what it was called, the showbread. It was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Did anyone hear a problem? A big one? A contradiction? Before we talk about that, the terms liberal and conservative are terms with which you should be familiar. And I'm not talking about political conservatism or political liberalism. I'm talking about theological conservatives and theological liberals. Broadly speaking, biblical conservatives believe the Bible to be historically and spiritually true. And liberals do not believe the Bible to be true in everything it says, but that it contains truth. This is an important distinction. Why we talk about this in context of this passage is critical because it's significant that this passage has become the target for much liberal scholarship to point to either one of two realities. Either Jesus is a liar, didn't know his Old Testament, or the Bible is untrue. Now, if you're still saying, I don't see it, I don't get it, well, let me make it as clear as I can. The writer of 1 Samuel says that David came to Ahimelech. Jesus says that David came to Abiathar. That's a problem. That is such a problem that liberal scholars point to this text as reason to disbelieve the authority and veracity, truthfulness of the Bible. So either Jesus is not perfect, he makes a huge historical error, or the Bible is sloppy historically and contains errors. So let me see if I can summarize the problem. Now, let's get into the details a little bit. Let's first notice that the Pharisees, by the way, didn't push back and say, oh, that's wrong, that's historically wrong. Luke and Matthew don't record the name here. Some have resolved this by saying that an early copyist of the text of Mark simply made a mistake. Someone was making a copy and didn't get it right. Now, I don't think that's a very satisfying answer since the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark all say that Jesus said it was Abiathar. So, did Jesus make a mistake? Did he err? Did he not know his, his, his Bible? Did the Son of God make a mistake with the Holy Scriptures? Let's go a little deeper. Ahimelech was the father of of Abiathar. And a closer look at the text reveals that Jesus did not actually say that Abiathar was already high priest at the time of David's visit. It simply says back in Mark, in the time of Abiathar the high priest. Now this is significant. And this is bloody and this is foreboding and foreshadowing. Not only do I not believe Jesus made a mistake here, I believe he said what he said on purpose to raise an awareness in the minds of these critics. If you're still in 1 Samuel, look across the page, 1 Samuel 22. King Saul finds out about what's happened and he has Ahimelech massacred along with the entire priestly community, except for one person. 
1 Samuel 22, verse 18. Then the king said to, to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests and killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. They were associated with the priestly worship, worked at the, at the tabernacle. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants. This is King Saul. He killed donkeys and oxen and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. Abiathar was the sole survivor of King Saul's massacre. He fled to David, and by the way, he served him as priest throughout David's years as fugitive from Saul. And then when David becomes king, he's appointed high priest alongside Saul's appointee, who is Zadok. And he served until David's death. I love what Gleason Archer says about this. He says, under these circumstances, it was perfectly proper to refer to Abiathar as the high priest, even though his appointment as such came somewhat later. After the incident at Nob, just as it would be proper to introduce an anecdote by saying, now when King David was a shepherd boy, even though David was not actually king, at the time he was a shepherd boy. I think it's a, an adequate illustration. Bottom line is the episode that happened here did indeed happen in the time of Abiathar. He was not only alive at the time, no doubt was there in the sanctuary with his father, Ahimelech, when this scene had occurred, when David had been there, and he was there when the attack happened, and he alone escaped the massacre. So even though David ate the consecrated showbread under Ahimelech, the event seems to have been remembered and transmitted and associated with the dominant high priesthood of Abiathar, and not only this, and this is where it's critical, I believe Jesus is showing his pre-crucifixion cards to the disciples and to the Pharisees. I think it's foreboding. It's prophetic foreshadowing of what will happen to him. Unrighteous Saul killed righteous Ahimelech and his priests. And the unrighteous Pharisees and Jewish leadership once again will execute the righteous son of David, Jesus himself. I don't think Jesus made a mistake here. I think he was throwing at them a very clear message of what had happened and a reminder the wickedness of bloody King Saul was a foretelling of his own blood that would be on their hands. A little footnote. Can I just admit to you a presupposition I bring to a text like this, and I hope you bring it as well. Whenever we see something that someone says, that's a contradiction, we know it's not. 
Our confidence that it is God's word informs us that there's a way to understand this. And if there's a problem, it's in my understanding, not in the historical facts that the Bible clearly elucidates. So now that we have that away, let's go back to the text. Now, in verse 27, Jesus rearranges his hearers' superstitious understanding of the Sabbath. He said to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Just as the showbread was used for righteous ways outside of the specific letter of the law, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. One of the most gracious blessings, listen, friends, one of the most gracious blessings of the entire law of God is the Sabbath. To see that they turned it into this superstitious way of, uh, of manipulating people is so, so tragic and so, so sad. We read in Exodus and in Deuteronomy that the Sabbath was a gift. He gave it as a gracious opportunity to rest but legalists turn it into a burden to carry. Not only that, if you read both texts, uh, Moses, God through Moses goes into extraordinary detail to say, not only should you take the day off, but give your servants a day off, your workers a day off, and your animals a day off. So it's not only an opportunity to enjoy rest, recreation, focus, worship on God. It's also an opportunity for you as an employer to be gracious to those who work for you. It's even gracious of you to let your animals rest, God said. It's important that we remember and see what Jesus is saying here. That God's intended blessing of the Sabbath was for our benefit, not a burden. It's a time to focus on and remember your covenant-keeping God. It's a time and enjoyment of rest and giving others that grace. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, are we Sabbath observers? We're going to talk about that specifically next week because we come back to what's good and appropriate to do on the Sabbath, and we're going to spend some time saying, is Christian Sunday the Jewish Saturday? And the short answer is no, it's not. You won't find any place in the New Testament where the Sabbath is commanded. In fact, when the Sabbath is talked about in the New Testament, it's primarily Jesus rebuking the, the religious leaders in the Gospels. And when you get to Hebrews chapter 4, the writer explodes it into a, a wonderful metaphor for heaven. That's when we'll rest. That's when we'll finally have a cessation from those things that trouble and worry us. But I still think that the principles that God gave to the Jews for Sabbath rest are wonderful, gracious principles we should remember. Maybe not always on one day. My father was a police officer. He worked most Sundays. When he took a day off besides Sunday, he would rest that day. The principle is the issue. The Sabbath was made for man to give blessing, Jesus is saying, not man for the Sabbath to give some kind of superstitious allegiance. Now just hold that in your mind because we are going to circle back to that in the first six verses of chapter three. The first new way of interpreting the old dilemma was identifying the misinterpretation of the Sabbath. The second way is understanding the purpose of the Sabbath is for grace and goodness of the followers of God. And thirdly, 
acknowledging the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the way he concludes this. This is, you talk about an exclamation point. So, in conclusion, the Son of Man is Lord, your text may say even or especially, in particular, of the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. It's the second time that Mark refers to uh, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. Remember, that's a, a, a phrase that's a highly technical phrase of the future anointed one of God in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where this one God will give authority to who will rule over all the peoples of the world at the end of history. And Jesus knew they knew Daniel. And for the second time in this chapter, refers to himself in the third person as the son of man, the great appointee of God who will receive all authority from God to rule the planet. Back in verse 10, we find that the son of man has the authority to forgive sin. And now we find out that he's the Lord, the ruler of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? I think there's a principle here that transcends the Judaism to which he was uh, addressing. Saying that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath is fundamental to the right that God and Jesus as God has the right to direct every moment of every hour of every day of every week of his followers. He's the Lord over our time is another way you can interpret this. The fundamental issue on the Sabbath is not our right to not work. It's God's right to tell us what to do on any day he wants to. Can I just ask you, do you acknowledge God's authority over the flow of your week, the contents of your days, the hours and minutes that you put on your schedule? Do you acknowledge God is Lord of your time? Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What he's saying there is teach us to know our days so that we can present you a wise way of responding to the gift of days you've given us. This superstition would last into the New Testament era. Paul would tell the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let's do some syllogizing here. Let's do some logic here. Who invented and commanded the Sabbath? Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Who, who authored, who initiated, who commanded the Sabbath? You can answer, God. Who is the son of man? Jesus. Who does Jesus proclaim the Lord of the Sabbath to be? Himself. Then who is the son of man? It's God in flesh, the Lord Jesus. All of God's commands are for our good. They're made for us. 
All of God's regulations are for our good. All of God's prohibitions are for our good. All of God's allowances and encouragements and liberties are for our good. All of God's expectations are for our good. And Jesus saying that the Sabbath was made for man as a gift of grace for your good is different than saying you were made so you could jump through hoops and please and impress the people around you. Let me ask you, is your, looking at these Pharisees, extra Mishnah and Talmud and Is the Bible your final authority? It wasn't for these critics. Do you find yourself being personally legalistic and applying standards to others far quicker than identifying lapses and holes in your own holiness? Also look at this passage and ask, is my heart inclined to judge others by unbiblical standards? Or, get this, by selective biblical standards? Listen, folks, no one is all one thing. No one. Do you find yourself applying legalistic expectations on others with a greater passion than you address your own personal sinfulness and patterns and habits that displease our Savior? Also look at this passage and ask, are all of my days subject to his lordship? I mean, think about it. Jesus saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath doesn't mean you can have the other six. He's saying, I am the Lord of the day off. How much more is he the Lord of the days on? And let me ask you one more time. Do you trust the historical accuracy of your Bible? Do you trust? I am completely okay saying, if I see two things that look like they're a contradiction, that's my fault, not, not the Bible's. Can, can you start there? It was discouraging to me this week looking at commentaries on this section, how many commentators just skipped that whole Abiathar and, and his father When you see something like that, it should excite your studies. And you dive in and say, God, what is this? I can't wait to see your glories in studying this out.